Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where those who think outside the box can create unique football bets from a combination of markets. Create your best bet with the innovative BetVictor Bet Builder. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, my name is Jonna, and I play football for Chelsea FC and for the Swedish national team. And you are listening to the Blue Day podcast. Hello Chelsea supporters, it gives me great pleasure for the 50th episode of this podcast to introduce to you this individual who doesn't need an introduction, but hell, I'll give him one anyway. To say he is Chelsea through and through is an understatement. He worked for Chelsea for over 30 years and to some, including myself, he was and still is the voice of Stamford Bridge. Here is Neil Barnett. Neil, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? I feel like putting on a false voice now. Yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Superb. You're looking well. I am well. great. I am great. But I've got to say uh, that uh, having watched us uh, deservedly win the Champions League, I'm just a little bit perturbed that I've watched us for the third campaign running be ever so lucky to come inside the top four as other teams have collapsed <laughs> around us. So I think... I think uh, I think I'm full of both optimism and anxiety, which is probably how all Chelsea supporters have been all my lifetime. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about current Chelsea later, but I just want to start the podcast by actually sort of saying that it was a number of years ago, but I actually met you uh, at a player signing and I've actually got your autograph. You probably will not remember it at all. But the reason why I bring it up was because it was uh, on the 14th of December 2007, Joe Cole and Wayne Bridge was doing a player signing at the Chelsea Megastore. I took my ex-girlfriend at the time to there as a surprise. Sorry, she was your ex-girlfriend at the time. No, no, no. She's current girlfriend at the time, but now it's my ex, right? I thought I cleared it up. It was a surprise for her, so it's because she was a big Joe Cole fan. So it was a surprise for her, and I bought a retro Chelsea away top uh, that Toffs did. Toffs had a contract with Chelsea Megastore, and they had the shirts a long, long time ago. So I bought the shirt. I got Joe Cole and Wayne Bridge to sign it. As I moved across to them, I saw you and the Chelsea TV camera. So... I'll admit it. I had no clue who you was. For some reason, you took my shirt and you signed it. 
you signed it spy and i looked at the shirt and i went oh thank you very much so i shook your hand and i walked across and then the, the, the friend of mine asked me who who signed that shirt i went i have no idea who signed it as soon as i got home i spent the rest of the evening researching you obviously a chelsea fan and yeah i've still got the shirt it's hanging up proudly and well, obviously for the benefit of the podcast, I'll, I'll show it on my Instagram and Facebook, but I'll show the picture of your Well, I don't know why I signed it if you, if you didn't ask, but it, funny enough, took you Joe Cole. It reminds me of a great Joe Cole story, uh, which he told. Um, I used to do, uh, I used to, when I was editor of Onside, I was editor of Onside and the programme, but on, in Onside, I used to do a, a Vox Pop every month with the players. Um, Vox Pop's with footballers for a football paper are great. Now you get box pops on the news on BBC and ITV every night and they're crap. It's not news at all. It's ignorance. Uh, you want experts on the news and footballers obviously in the football newspaper are experts. And it was, it was, but this was like the August issue, first one of the season and talking about what people did on their holidays. And Joe Cole told this great story about, he was on holiday in, I think, somewhere in the States, I think. Uh, and uh, he was standing there and someone came up to him and said, uh, would you mind a photo? Uh, a guy and his girlfriend. He went, no, of course not. And he put his arm around the girlfriend and the bloke handed him his camera because he wanted him to take a photograph of the two of them <laughs> and didn't have a clue who he was. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Really? <laughs> At least he just put his arm around the shoulder rather than anywhere else. <laughs> um, Neil, is, like I said, it's going to be a great pleasure to have you on the show. So I want to start off, you know, what, what was your earliest football memory of growing up as a kid and who were your idols? My, my first game was 1959, uh, Chelsea won Everton nil. Uh, my dad wanted me to be an Everton supporter. My dad, my mum and dad are quite worth they're both dead now, that were quite posh uh, and very middle class. And, and my, they got married in 1946. And uh, my dad just made a terrible tactical strategic error. Uh, he wanted to uh, go to football and he persuaded my mum to go to a game. And of course, 1946, 47, this is good timing to be talking about this, was the one season that Brentford were in the top flight post-war until this season. Uh, now uh, and for some reason he took her to Griffin Park so uh, I don't know why he, he took her there um, and uh, she came out of one afternoon at Griffin Park and you can imagine what it was like in 46 yeah. 47 anyone who's been there in the last few years it's not improved much uh, <laughs> uh, uh, she came out and she said I'm never going to a football match again um, so he didn't go because uh, that was how it was and he was desperate to take me along to football. So when I was um, when I was six in 1959, he he at that time was doing some work with the chairman of Everton, and he fancied swanning around the directors' boxes of London on freebies every time Everton came to town. Uh, but on this occasion, he didn't get his tickets from Everton. He just bought two tickets, and we went and sat in the old, as it was then called, New Stand, North Stand, the one on stilts. Uh, where uh, when Jimmy Greaves came to take a corner below us and everyone went, Chelsea, 
and stamp their feet uh, as opposed to clap their hands and the, the stadium shook. It was about the most exciting thing imaginable for a six-year-old. So, so what, what I recall most clearly from that 1959 game, the corners Jimmy Grease took from below me and how the ball curls, and that was the old leather ball, of course, how it curled. Uh, I remember two goals being disallowed for offside um, because uh, I didn't understand the offside rule, and I, could, I had to have it explained. Uh, Jimmy Greaves scored the only goal of the game. I don't remember that. I just have looked it up. Uh, I, I interviewed Ron Tindall later on, uh, who was Jimmy Greaves' set-forward to inside forward, his, his strike partner, and, and said how that was my first game and how... I remember his haircut. He had one of those uh, Elvis fringes sort of thing. Uh, and he said, I played left back in that game. I didn't play centre forward. And I went and looked at the records. And sure enough, in the days when your number was your position, there he was at left back. Couldn't believe it. So I didn't remember that. So I went, that was, I went to four games with my dad and they were all Everton games. That was the only Chelsea one. But I decided, because I was a bullshy little kid, uh, that Chelsea were going to be my team and not Everton. But Tottenham were the best team in the country. Uh, and um, they, the, of course, there was no even match of the day in this, this era. Tottenham were the best team in the country. And all the kids at school were beginning to support Tottenham and, and uh, back pages of the newspaper. Some Chelsea, but, but mostly Tottenham. I, was, I lived in Richmond. Uh, so it was to me, it was Chelsea, Fulham, Brentford, or QPR. That's no choice, was it? Uh, although Fulham had a good team, by the way, at the time, in England captain Johnny Haynes and what Haynes, yeah. Um, and um, and uh, I was determined that I, I wanted to be Chelsea, but they weren't doing very well. And we got to Easter 1960, uh, and my dad said to me, On Easter Monday, it's Tottenham, Chelsea. Why don't we go to that and you can decide which one you want to support? Um, and that seemed like a pretty damn good idea to me. And we were driving up. I can remember this so clearly. We were, I was still six, I wasn't seven till, till August. And we were driving up the North Circular um, to go to White Hart Lane. And he said to me, Tottenham are top of the league. He said, Chelsea were down in the relegation zone, fighting relegation, which in those days was two down, two up, two down. He said, and they've brought this foreign 18-year-old into goal. I can't pronounce his name. And they, they've hardly lost since, and they're in mid-table now. And he's been an absolute star. So we get to the game, um, and uh, we sat behind the goal, uh, and... In those days at White Hart Lane, the tunnel was in the corner. So the tunnel was in the corner to our right. Uh, and uh, and um, Tottenham attacked the goal in front of us in the first half. Tottenham attacked for 89 minutes and they absolutely destroyed us. But this 18-year-old goalkeeper caught everything. He, just, he was tiny, just flew across his goal and he caught everything. And he bounced the ball to the edge of his area. He kicked it about 300 yards in the air and it landed about three feet in front of him because he couldn't flip and kick. And he raced back into his goal and he saved the next shot. Jimmy Greaves scored the only goal of the game. He was still a Chelsea player. Tottenham won one... Uh, Chelsea won one nil. Watch my mouth out. Chelsea won <laughs> one nil. Uh... The news came through that Burnley had won that day and Burnley leapfrogged Tottenham 
uh, and uh, went top of the table and went on to win the league because it was the year before Tottenham won the double and Chelsea climbed further up the table. Now, it was this 18-year-old's fifth game in goal and, of course, it was my fifth game and he became my hero and, of course, later my friend. And, of course, it was Peter Bonetti who was uh, uh, just a revolutionary goalkeeper. And, by the way... Start as you mean to go on. Tottenham! <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah, I mean, we stopped Tottenham winning the league in 1960. I think everybody ought to remember that and celebrate it every Easter Monday. <laughs> I, I think we should. I think that's a great idea. Peter Bonetti, you've mentioned him you know, obviously somebody way before my time, but seeing him, the, the highlights of Peter Bonetti, bearing in mind this was before goalkeepers had gloves and, you know, the, the, the way he commanded his area, the saves he would make, the presence he had, he was certainly a keeper way... He was the first goalkeeper to catch crosses as opposed to punch them. Um, and he was the first goalkeeper who sort of had that, what was then called continental flair, but that was only because of his name and we were English and didn't really say all that on board. But, but he was a different style of goalkeeper completely. I, I mean, uh, um, even in my blindness uh, uh, to him being my hero. By the way, um, it's interesting you've had Kevin Hitchcock on uh, recently because uh, I, have, I have preached to my son always um, that your first hero must remain your hero and always remain your best ever. Uh, and my son's hero is Kevin Hitchcock. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, uh, I took him down the training ground at Harlington once on a very snowy day uh, and we climbed out the car and the first thing that happened was that the snowball hit me in the head from about 60 yards away, thrown by one Kevin Hitchcock. Well, what <laughs> six, seven-year-old boy wouldn't make that person his hero? Uh, so um, um, Hitchy's, Hitchy's son, Tom, uh, who grew up close friends with the Zola family, um, always understood uh, where football hierarchy lay and always wore a shirt with number 25 and Zola on the back. So, in fact, my son was the only kid who ever had Hitchcock on his back because not even Kevin's son did. But to go back to, to the cat, I, I mean, he, he was... He was um, I, I believe now that Chelsea's greatest ever goalkeeper is better Jack. Uh, even, even however much the cat is my hero, mm. the greatest goalkeeper is Jack. I still think the cat is number two. Um, mm. But extraordinarily, I believe that Edward Mendy is the first goalkeeper since Peter Bonetti to dominate his area, as you said, to the same degree, even though the cat was the smallest goalkeeper of the lot. Not even Petr Cech came out and dominated his penalty area. Thibaut Courtois did for four months and then stopped for some mm. reason. I never quite understood that. Um, but, uh, but the cat used to come out and catch crosses at the end of games when there was only one goal difference between the teams on the edge of his area. And Mendy's the first one to do that since. I love Edward Mendy. At the moment, he's turning out to be a very good signing. Yeah, I think he's brilliant. At the moment. You talk about the times where you went to Chelsea when you, when you was a boy. 
you've mentioned sort of partly about the crowd. What was, in general, the crowd like? Because this was before Chelsea had, you know, all-seater stadiums. It was way before the attendance was like 42,000. Yeah, yeah Chelsea, I mean... I... There was times there was used to be 50, 60, even more, over 60,000. What, what was that like as an atmosphere... It, it was brilliant, it was fun, but compared to now, it was garbage because there was an athletic or a dog trap, um, a dog trap around the pitch, uh, and everything just went up in the atmosphere. Now, obviously, as, as the pitch host, I spent many years walking players around at half time uh, um, in front of the fans, and all the ones who were from pre 1994 95, when basically the new stadium, the all seaters came in, the new stadium. Uh, uh, was properly built and uh, and the and the uh, dog trap was got rid of. All the players from before that time all said, "My God, I wish I could have played in this. This is completely different." So, as brilliant as it was, it was no comparison. And everyone who who, who wants to go back to standing and wants to go back, which I understand, uh, and wants to go back to to pre ninety four or pre Premier League days because it was so much better. No, it wasn't. It was much worse. And, and um, uh, I remember uh, Martin Tyler, the, common, the Sky Sports commentator, saying to me, um, you will never win the league until you sort your stadium out because you, you're, you're, you're just not frightening enough to go to with that, with that track and everything. And he was proved right because, you know, forget the Roman investment, uh, in 94, we hadn't won anything for uh, 23 years. Uh, and boy, oh boy, we got to... Um, we, we won our first trophy three years later and essentially haven't stopped since. Mm. So uh, it, it really did make a huge difference. I might also say, I remember Graham Lasso saying we'd never win anything until uh, we moved from Harlington. And uh, we certainly... Uh, that move from Harlington to Cobham was a massive move as well. We have had a few ex-Chelsea players on the show that actually mentioned that Stamford Bridge Stadium at the time, before, as you say, before 94, wasn't great and how they would have preferred, much preferred to have played in that more stadium, more enclosed. enclosed. It's enclosed. You know, it's, the, yeah. the crowd's on top of you. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Mm. It'd be it, nice to have a bigger pitch, but maybe Well, some. we can't have it all. We can't have it all, can we? Uh, I want to start sort of discussing your employment with Chelsea Football Club. How did you first get involved in working for Chelsea? And being a Chelsea supporter, this must have been the stuff of dreams for you, surely? Yeah, well, I, I was um, I was involved in all sorts of uh, antics, and and, and uh, I was always I always worked for myself. Uh, and in 1986, I've been involved in a project that I wasn't very impressed with, um, in which I met. Uh, in fact, I was on a I was on a panel or something, uh, board possibly. We were trying to start something, but I wasn't very impressed with the whole project. But I, I was on with the chairman, owner, or something uh, of uh, the London Newspaper Group, which was all the local newspapers across West London. Uh, and southwest London uh, and I told him how garbage his newspaper was and how dreadful 
the sports coverage was, and it wasn't covered like a newspaper coverage should be. I, I've never had any training as a journalist, uh, but I was a freelance member of the NUJ because I was I was I started uh, with some other people, uh, a community newspaper in Earl's Court, just up the road, um, uh, where I'd been living in a in a at the time in the seventies, a really garbage area, um, and. Um, I I, uh, I went on a lot of campaigns uh, to try and improve it. And I had a whole series of articles uh, going to the national media. And in those days, you couldn't get into the national media unless you were a member of a union. So I finished up being invited or, or, or proposed to, to join the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, as a, as a freelancer. So that was my only teaching. Um, and I was telling this... this uh, owner of the local papers that his, his coverage was crap uh, and that he what he needed was a proper sports editor someone to cover QPR someone to cover Fulham and me to cover Chelsea uh, so uh, the editor phoned me uh, and said would I become sports editor I said no I've got time I was doing all sorts of other things get someone to cover QPR I'll cover Fulham I'll do Chelsea anyway he phoned me back about three weeks a month later he said I don't think you understand we've only got this as a budget either you become the sports editor or we don't offer you anything anything else is not available just come and talk to me so I went and talked to him and I became their sports editor and I, 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 I killed a lot of what I was doing to do that and um, one of the first games I went, actually, one of the first games I went to as, as uh, sports editor was when Chelsea lost to Queen's Park Rangers in the uh, League Cup. Do you remember that? 2-0 um, at Stamford Bridge in extra time. I think, was that the game Eddie Nesvesky got his first cruciate leg of could have been. Um, Might and, have been, uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I... I went that year, Queen's Park Rangers got to the final of the League Cup and lost 3-0 to Oxford United. So that was my first. That and the ZDS Chelsea Man City were my first Wembley Cup final. <laughs> ZDS was actually my first one, the 5-4 against Man City. Um, but when I, when, I, um, when I wrote up the Queen's Park Rangers game, I pointed out that QPR had beaten Chelsea in the quarters and Liverpool in the semis. And however atrocious their performance was in the final, the fact was that in years to come, this would be looked back on as one of the great campaigns of Queen's Park Rangers, which turned out to be true because I don't think they've done anything since then, have they? Um, no. Not to my knowledge. Um, and they've become a horrible little club as well, but I won't go into that. Um, but they were quite a nice club back then. Um, anyway, that uh, summer... British Telecom started Club Call, uh, which was the first daily correspondence, if you like, between football clubs and its supporters. So when they signed the deal with QPR, uh, the then chief executive, who himself was a journalist and who himself went on to edit Bridge News and the Chelsea programme, Dennis Signey, close friend of Bobby Campbell, uh, who I'd spoken to on the phone, but never met, um, I'd interviewed him on the phone, proposed me to do QPR Club Call. 
because he liked my attitude and what I'd written and how it would be looked back, what I'd said about the League Cup final. So BT phoned me up out of the blue and offered me the job. I mean, I, I didn't have to do anything or broadcast or anything. They offered me the job. And they asked me if I'd had any radio experience. So I did what all good journalists do. I lied and said yes. Um, and to be fair, I had done quite a lot of radio, but not really present. Well, I'd done a bit of presentation, but not much. Mostly I'd be on the other end of the microphone in all my campaigns and everything. Um, and, and I'd be the one interviewed. So so I said, yeah, I'll do it, uh, and did a deal. And I said, but I'm a Chelsea supporter. Can I do Chelsea as well? And they said, oh, we're signing Chelsea up next week. Yeah, you can do Chelsea as well. I was in. So, um, uh, and uh, the, in fact, the following season, 87, 88, um, I started doing Wimbledon, which is good you do Wimbledon because that was the year they won the FA Cup with That's Wisey right. and Dave yeah. Besant and uh, Terry Phelan, Finney Jones, Finney Jones players yeah. in the making. Um, and uh, so I knew all of them pretty well long before they came to Chelsea. And uh, it was, uh, but, but I was then in this ridiculous situation of where I was going around three training grounds uh, most days of the week and knowing everything that was going on. So when Chelsea or Wimbledon and QPR were playing each other, the managers were phoning me up and saying, what's the other team? And I'm saying, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell them your team, but I, I'd know what both teams were. It, it was just getting a really rotten situation. And um, in 1990, well, I must just tell you that the first club call live coverage that we did, and it wasn't full commentary, it was just, um, it was just uh, uh, updates we had to update on every goal. Uh, some people will remember Cub Call, 08, 9, 8, 12, 11, 59. I still remember the number. Um, <laughs> it started off at about 40 pence a minute and it finished up at about 50 pounds a minute or something by the time it finished. But, but um, uh, the first game I did where we were just supposed to do updates was Chelsea 2, Nottingham Forest 6 in uh, 1986-87 and the people at Club Call when I kept phoning in and saying I've got another update I thought I was taking them in but, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah so uh, in 91 um, when British News was coming under a lot of pressure from the fanzines because it was perhaps too friendly with the manager um, and that was Dennis Sydney and Bobby Campbell in fact mm, mm. uh, I was uh, they decided, the club decided that it would have a kind of fanzine pullout um, in the centre spread to make it more fan-friendly. Uh, and uh, Alan Collis, the late Alan Collis from, um, from uh, his fanzine, um, was asked to do it. And Dennis Signey didn't want him doing it because uh, he was too anti-Bobby Campbell and asked me if I'd do it. I didn't want to do it, but I felt obliged because Dennis had given me the job at QPR as such, the club call. So I said yes. And I was in at Chelsea getting club call uh, content in the summer. And Colin Hutchinson, chief executive, was there. And he said, oh, I hear you're doing, a, I hear you're doing a, the new pullout. And I said, well, if I have to. He said, what do you mean if you have to? I said, well, it's a stupid idea, but I'll do it if I have to. And he said, come in my office. And I went in his office and he says, what do you mean a stupid idea? I said, well, second-rate satire isn't what the newspaper lacks. He says, what is it? I said, insight. And he said, 
that's a good name for a newspaper, Chelsea Insight. And then he looked at me pointedly and he said, but you could never edit and run the newspaper on your own, fully knowing that I had run a newspaper in Earl's Court on my before, and me fully knowing that he'd run a rugby league, uh, was it rugby league or motocross? I think he ran a rugby league one. Rugby, yeah, uh, maybe rugby league. Uh, and I said two words that you can imagine what they were. One was off. Um, <laughs> and ten minutes later, I was the editor of the. I was the editor of the newspaper. We did a deal there and then. And part of the deal was that I give up everything on Chelsea. So although I was still hard on a freelance basis, in 1991, I started working for no one but Chelsea. And that's how it started. Yeah. So I was wow. editor of one side until 2004. 94, I took over the programme. I was editor of that till 2004. Uh, I started on the pitch in 1992. Again, funnily enough, I was in, in, the, I was in getting some club court material. Uh, it was December 92. Um, Colin Hutchinson, it was in the old ivy-clad offices, and Colin Hutchinson came out and said, um, oh, we've got six, seven, in his Yorkshire accent, we got six, seven presentations at half-time on the pitch today. We can't do them from the PA box. We need someone on the pitch with a microphone. Who's got the loudest bloody voice here? Spy, he said, called me in his office. And that was it. I was in and away. Brilliant. In regards to later on when you would interview past and present Chelsea players, was there anyone in particular when you first started that you couldn't wait to interview? And why? Uh, No, no. I I, I mean, I, I think... What I was, I was always kind of, um, I'd say what I call a student of the game. I, I, I was a bit of a nerd, a bit of a geek. Uh, and, and so I always wanted to get into the nitty gritty of the game. But I was always kind of a bit of a stand-up comedian who just wanted to banter as well. So, so I wanted both sides of that. And, and, and what I found was that the players loved hearing stuff they didn't know about themselves. Right. And talking about that, and they loved a bit of banter because that basically is addressing them. So it, it just, it, it just felt all really natural. And when I, when I first started in 86, I mean, Kings of the banter were, were people obviously like Kerry Dixon, uh, uh, um, and uh, it, it just, it, it grew from there. Nigel Spatman, uh, people like that were kings. Uh, Colin, Colin Pates and John Bumstead together. I mean, you know, you, you just, you couldn't beat that. And, and, uh, and of course, Pat Nevin, the man on the side, uh, who, who always had uh, a fine word for everyone. I mean, it, it was, it was, it, it, but at the same time, when I started, it, it was very quickly a broken dressing room. It was that broken dressing room of of eighty six to eighty eight. It was that period, wasn't it? That there was yeah. too and, many and, clicks. Um, you know, there was sort of, sort of players not you know not playing for the team. They were sort of looking out for themselves a little bit because we we've had players you know like Clive Wilson and Steve Wicks, for example. They've mentioned that the dressing room there was no. Squad harmony, or the you know, squad no, harmony was really not. low. I went up to a, I went up to a game at Hull. Um, I think it was a midweek game, which we lost three nil. Um, uh, just doing it for cuckold. Uh, went to get the post match interviews, 
and uh, they all re- they all refused to be interviewed. And Darren Wood came out, and he was the PFA rep at the time, and explained to me that they'd had a bloody great row uh, over some issue with Ken Bates. I think it was going back to the Iraq friendly. Uh, when they hadn't been paid bonuses, so they had all decided to refuse to talk to uh, refuse to talk to any of the club uh, publications or, 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 or um, in this case, club court. And Bobby Campbell was managing, came out, and he refused as well. So I, I drove all the frigging way up to Hull and all the frigging way back and got absolutely nothing. And I remember spending an hour on the phone to Darren Wood the next day while he sort of was extremely pleasant and apologised profusely, but said it was going to go on. And did, until uh, I think Nigel Spatman threatened to sue Batesy, didn't he, over that? Wow. It is quite interesting sort of hearing people with like different stories, but they all come right as one, you know, and it's interesting in that particular period when Chelsea went down to the second division, the fact that there was a lot of pressure on them, they just went immediately straight back up because they bought the likes of... Graham Roberts and Peter Graham Roberts, yes, and Peter Nicholas. And it was just a case of Chelsea just went immediately back up and they haven't been down since. No, and and, uh, we we should never have been relegated that that season. Um, I think the 3-0 was... Actually, I think it was 87, 88. I think it was in the second division before we got our season going properly. But, but, um, but, uh, yeah, it would have been because Hull wouldn't have been in the top flight, would they? But but, um, it was... That team was... It it just had no discipline, no responsibility. I think you'll find that from early on, we conceded three goals every away game almost the whole season. It was... It was absolutely shocking, uh, and uh, it was it, it it was it it just went wrong. It all went wrong for a number of reasons, and I think um, I think uh, dissatisfaction with Ernie Wally, the coach, was a lot of the reasons uh, behind it. And, and it, it, it um, I'm still in touch with Graham Roberts, uh, who obviously is a big Tottenham man. We all know that, and and he's. Uh, He's part of the hospitality at Tottenham. He, he is still as as fiery and as um, um, as opinionated uh, and as demanding as he was uh, at Chelsea. I would say that he is in the top four or five captains we've ever had. He was a bully. He was a he was a nasty central defensive bully as a captain, and he. Bullied people like Graham Lasso massively, and some people haven't forgiven him for that. But he pulled that flipping team together uh, and and made us a dressing room again. And he he was I thought he was outstanding for, for Chelsea for one year. I, he was he was he was getting slower than a steamroller by the end, but but he was outstanding that season. And we've been a pretty good dressing room since, I think. I want to sort of do a bit of a side note in regards to players. As we are in the summer transfer window season at the moment and rumours galore every five minutes, if you know what you hear on Sky Sports or on Twitter or Instagram, I'd like to ask you what players was you most pleased with that we that Chelsea signed? And also, was there a player or players that you wish we hadn't signed looking back from your time at Chelsea? <laughs> um, 
I was delighted when we signed Kepa Aragabalaga because loads of people uh, that I know who follow La Liga told me how good he was. I haven't been so happy since. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, uh, Spain in particular, um, Italy to a certain extent, but less so, goalkeepers stay on their line. Um, David De Gea, for me, the most overrated goalkeeper I can ever remember. Uh, um, uh, uh, all these, all these goal, even Thibaut, he didn't like coming off his line. Um, I don't recall him ever. You know, not he was much. Good on it's, especially Kurtow. at corners, yeah. Thibaut Courtois was world class at one on ones. Yes, um, but but coming off his line for through balls wasn't his thing, uh, and and um, and. Uh, coming for crosses he did at the beginning but he stopped it it's the La Liga thing and I think uh, I think that Paul Kappa really really struggled with that from the moment that he came um, but I was really delighted when we signed him I, I, I've got to say but I mean signings um, I mean from a personal level I was delighted when we signed anyone I already knew um, right um, now one person that I knew who I I, I think had a wonderful six, nine months at Chelsea and then it all went wrong. It uh, wasn't a player, but it was Don Howe, who came in as Ian Porterfield's coach in the 92-93 season. Now, in a time when we were never very near the top of the league, we actually uh, were in the top four in throughout December that season and playing some pretty damn good football with a lot of kids, a bit like uh, it has been the last couple of years. And we had... Uh, Gareth Hall was in the team, Graham Stewart, um, Jason Cundy. Uh, yeah, Jason. Was Jason still there? Had he gone? He might have oh, gone. Oh, he, he left. Yeah, Jason left in 91, uh, 92. He left the summer before. But it was um, Dave Lee was playing. Um, uh, Graham Lasseau was in and out, but he was mostly playing. Damien Matthew? Matthew? I think Damien he, Matthew. He would have been playing. there, 91. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so. Um, and it was a really young team, and we were playing some terrific football. Uh, Robert Fleck was up front with Mick Harford. Flecky wasn't scoring, but he was making goals. He was a bit Timo Bernerish in a way. Mm. Uh, and and um, and uh, Mick Harford was was top scorer. And what a team that was! And, and um, uh, it was really exciting. Now I'd known Don because he'd been coach at Wimbledon when they. Uh, won the cup, but he'd been coach uh, and manager at Queen's Park Rangers uh, when I was doing their club call. So I knew him really well. And he was, people don't know about Don Howe enough. He was the England coach in 1982 when we went through the World Cup undefeated. He was the England coach in 1986 uh, when we got to the quarterfinals in uh, Mexico. That's he was right. the England coach in 1990 when we got to the semi-finals. With Sir Bobby, uh, yeah. He was then ditched by Graham Taylor, but brought back by Terry Venables when we got to the semi-finals of the Euros in 96. He was basically the only person linked with every England not disgusting failure in international tournaments up until Gareth Southgate, who's had Steve Holland, which explains it all. But... Um, <laughs> but um, he, he, I was absolutely delighted when we signed Don Howe because I knew him well and I knew how good he was. And um, 
I've got to tell you about his first training session. This is 1992. And he put on this session uh, with three small-sided pitches. Uh, and he kept changing it. Uh, and it would be uh, five against three, four against four, six against two. He kept changing it. Um, and all you had to do, there was a small area uh, on the goal line where you had to stop the ball. And if you stopped it on the line, that was a goal. And people were doing it. And you could tell they were sort of, is this what we're supposed to be doing for Don Howe? You know, great Don Howe. And he blew his whistle at one point And he shouted, um, look, this isn't, this isn't university. This is really simple. There are basically three ways to get the ball from one end of the pitch to the other. One is dribble and beat everybody. One is pass and move. And one is pass it longer and to somebody on your side and go and support the ball. That's all there is. There's nothing else to football. Just do what you're good at. Blew his whistle again, and suddenly everyone was buzzing, and it was this incredible high-tempo, intense training session. Absolutely brilliant. Now, in the same way, another famous first training session was Glenn Hoddle, and he was another one. I mean, Glenn Hoddle should be considered as one of the greatest Chelsea personalities ever. I know he's Tottenham again. There's this running theme, but Glenn Hoddle transformed our club, absolutely transformed our club. And in his first training session, he formed a circle of the players and he put two people in the middle and he had two balls. And the people on the edge of the circle had to fire the ball into one of the players and shout his name as he was firing it in. But there'd be two balls going at once. And that player had to say a name and volley it back to somebody in the circle. And within seconds, there were balls flying everywhere. None of it worked. And as you can imagine, the players really started taking the mick and they were firing stupid balls in and stupid mm -hmm. balls everywhere and whacking them distances. And this was Arlington. They could go a distance at Arlington. There was nowhere to stop it. Uh, they finished up on the runway at Heathrow. And it all got out of hand. And in the end, Glenn stopped it and said, look, you should be able to do this. And he went in the middle. Well, when a manager puts himself in the middle, they get a really far, the ball's in even harder. So they started sending extra sets in at Glenn Hoddle, because it was Glenn Hoddle. And he just went, name, volley, out it went. Name, volley, out the ball went. And it always went to where he said, name, volley. And suddenly people realised that there was more to this than meets the eye. It was an incredible training session. A little later during pre-season, we had, we had a game out somewhere, I don't remember, South End or somewhere like that. Uh, and I was interviewing the players for Club Call. Uh, and uh, I was interviewing, um, I don't remember who it was, maybe Dave Lee, who was uh, playing sweeper, uh, or, but wasn't going to play because he knew that Glenn Noble was going to pick himself ahead of, of him. Uh, and while I was talking to him, Frank Sinclair came running out. Uh, who then would have been aged, what, about 21? Frank Sinclair came running up and interrupted and said, don't listen to him, Spy. It's really simple. We get the ball at the back, we win it, they pass to me, and we start to play from there. <laughs> well, Frank wasn't blessed at that point with a lot of talent on the ball. <laughs> he knew what he was saying. It was a good dressing room. That dressing room with those kids... I miss Frank Sinclair out in that 92-93 uh, mm -hmm. team. He was essential to that side.
Uh, in fact, he was playing centre back with uh, Ken Moncow um, that season. Uh, right, yeah. um, it was um, that was a top dressing, top top dressing. Andy Townsend, top dressing. You've mentioned Glenn Hoddle and how he changed the philosophy of the club right from the start. It's funny because before COVID and pandemic, I was going near enough every other week to, to the bridge. And every time Glenn Hoddle was on the side doing coverage for BT Sport or whatever, people would say, oh, I don't like him. You know, I never liked him even when he was at Chelsea. And I'm thinking to myself, and then again, I'm... I. Was I came in sort of right after Glenn Hoddle, but I remember and I've seen highlights of Glenn Hoddle's training sessions with Chelsea and how Chelsea played. And I'm thinking this guy doesn't get the credit he deserves from all the fans. Obviously, this might be a small minority of those that appreciate his work, but there's still some that just because he was a Tottenham guy, they tarnish him with, oh, he's crap. Well, if it wasn't for him, no way would we have got the Rude Hullet no. era, the Viali era, and no. players like Zola and Roberto Di Matteo. So, as you say, and we've had players like Gavin Peacock who absolutely, you know, just loved working under Glenn Hoddle and just his training sessions and his insight and his intelligence of football was just amazing. And people can sort of listen to interviews that we've had with people. I mean, Hitchcock said what a, not just a coach, but a man that Glenn Hoddle yeah, was. Yeah, but to, to be fair, everybody believes that Kevin Hitchcock was Glenn's son because he was so favoured by him. So I'm not having that from Hitchy. We were his son, Hitchy. You know it. Um, I want to say this, and I want to say it very, very strongly indeed. Um, I think the Chelsea fans' hatred of Tottenham is the, one of the most pathetic things uh, at Chelsea Football Club. It's absolutely pathetic. I bet most people don't even know where it comes from. So let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from the 1967 FA Cup final. Because basically, 67-68 was the year that hooliganism took hold and people started fighting. And we just lost the first... It was the first ever All-London Cup final. And we just first... uh, Termed in those days, the Cockney Cup final. And we just learned lost the first cup final to Tottenham, and so it became... And also, we weren't going to hate Fulham or QP, well, QPR and, and, and uh, Brentford were, were different different planets away yes. at the time. Yes. So, so somewhere... Tottenham was, was the easy enemy. It, it's absolutely pathetic. And, and uh, uh, all I would say about Tottenham is they were our opponents, the first home game after Matthew Harding died. They were our opponents the first home game after Peter Osgood died. And on both occasions, their fans were absolutely meticulous in their respect of what had happened. And Chelsea uh, were Tottenham's first opponents um, uh, in the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley after Hugo Egiot died. Uh, who was their reserve team coach, though he never played for them. And our fans were completely respectful um, of, of, um, of them. So what's the issue? Now, I, I was having a curry post-match in Leicester once, uh, and a Chelsea fan... That's a slight lie. 
I was having a curry post-match in Leicester loads of times. Um, but on this specific occasion that I'm talking about, um, someone at our table, a Chelsea fan, said, I just hate Tottenham fans. They're so thin. I, I said, oh, don't be so pathetic. Um, uh, and uh, he said, no, no, all my Tottenham mates. I said, Tottenham mates? Hang on. you got Tottenham mates. And you, uh, I mean, it's just pathetic. And, of course, it, it, it got out of hand with the whole Y word thing. Uh, and, and when you had a Jewish owner, as we did, who transformed our club, it was just disgusting what went on. I'm sorry, it was disgusting. And I think just as 1982 onwards was absolutely disgusting for Paul Cannaville, for Keith Jones and, and uh, uh, Keith Dublin and, and, and anybody who had an ounce of of decency and dignity and passion and real support of the club. So I think the whole Tottenham thing has been despicable. Um, and they are just a minor club in North London. It's just not worth it. I think we'll move on. There's one person that you did uh, briefly mention. And this year quite incredibly, would have been 25 years since he's passed. And that was Matthew Harding. What are your memories of Matthew? You know, obviously when you was part of the Chelsea club call, did you ever sort of have conversations with him about the club? And was he sort of quite approachable to you? What sort of type of guy was he? Oh, no, we're good mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what kind of guy was he? He, 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 he was at his desk at six o'clock in the morning. Worked for six solid hours, then hit the Guinness. And uh, wasn't very fond of eating uh, and led a very liquid life. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, which couldn't have been more opposite to Ken Bates, uh, who drank his wine with his meals. And um, yeah, the, their drinking habits were different. Um, but. But I'll tell you what, they fell out. How many of their arguments were they both pissed out of their minds? Rather more than I think people are aware. <laughs> right. Because I, I was going to ask, because again, you was, in, you, know, you, you was in the inside. How bad did it get between Bates and Harding? So obviously, you know, absolutely. Harding, a, Harding, absolutely. Harding was banned from the, I believe it was a director's box. Or, yeah, it was. Yeah, he was, he was banned from there certain fans had their allegiances to Matthew Harding because they saw him as one of their own and they were against Bates. How bad did it get between those two individuals? And did it have any impact on the club with regards to the players? Did you know were, were they affected by it a little bit or was it just concentrating on the football? It was absolutely massive. Uh it, it, it may not have had an effect on the players so much, but it certainly did on the management. Um, Colin Hutchinson and Glenn Hubble were very much on the Matthew Harding side of the argument, but obviously couldn't make that too clear to the guy who owned and ran the club. Um, and, uh, um, and there were all sorts of pressures um, there were financial pressures as well. I mean, so one of the reasons that Batesy took out that massive loan uh, that in the end had to be repaid and was, was 
part of the issues when he had to sell the club many years later was to see off Matthew Harding so that he wouldn't be forever in his debt uh, because obviously that's where some of the income was coming from uh, to get people like Mark Hughes and, and Ruth Hullett into the club. Um, I always found that they both had something to give uh, and you had to find a way of uh, allowing them both to give it. But that was very, very difficult. And, and um, it, was, it, it was a very difficult time. And um, I was, um, <laughs> we were playing a home game. Oh, this would be about 96, probably. We were, uh, 95, 96, we were playing a home game. Uh, and I got a call to go up about 20 past two to go up to the director's uh, room which was still in the East End in those days. So I, I grabbed a camera and I grabbed a tape recorder and I grabbed a pen and notepaper because so I, I didn't know what I was wanting for. And I went up and uh, I knocked on the door and waited and uh, someone came to the door and said, I'll get the chairman. And he came out and he went absolutely ballistic at me. And he accused me of leaking a conversation, a telephone conversation that he and I had had on the size of the pitch and the um, and the uh, results when it was bigger and when it was smaller. Uh, and he, he, I'd had to look up all these results for him. And um, he accused me of leaking it to the media because basically that conversation turned out on the back page of the News of the World uh, a, a week later. I hadn't leaked it. Uh, I certainly hadn't. And I would never do anything like that. Uh, so I went ballistic because I considered it an insult uh, to my integrity. However, it was our conversation on the back page of the News of the World. I'm not going to claim that I've been hacked. I was an early, I was an early victim of hacking uh, in the 1990s. But what I had done, I had taken that conversation and I passed it on to Glenn Hoddle and to Colin Hutchinson because I didn't feel that I should be the one person in, in receipt of this kind of knowledge of what was going on. Uh, in fact, I subsequently discovered that he'd accused both of them of leaking it as well, so I wasn't uh, on my own. Uh, and, and this is how it was at the time. And um, I, I was only ever on an annual contract, uh, and I was always being fired, because when I first got the job of onside, Colin Hutchinson said to me, your job is to see off the fanzines. Your job is to walk the line. And the moment you cross it, I'll sack you. Um, and I wouldn't have been interested in it because of who I am and what I've done if I couldn't walk the line, because I was only interested in having enthusiastic debate about our football club. So I was, I was forever being sacked. And, and, um, and I went down after this. Batesy finished the conversation uh, by telling me to F off and never come back again. Uh, and I was thinking, I'm on the pitch in 10 minutes. What do I do now? So I went down and saw Colin Hutchinson. And he said, oh, I've been accused of, of leaking it as well. Don't worry, don't worry. You're out of contract, aren't you, in a couple of months? And I went, yeah. He said, come in on Monday. I'll give you a two-year contract. Which, and it was the only time I ever signed a two-year contract uh, uh, that summer at Stamford Bridge. I went down and saw, I thought, should I see Glenn? Half past two, 23, I thought, I better just warn him. And he was in his office, he wasn't in the dressing room, so I went in and told him. And he said, oh, yeah, I've been accused as well. He said, thanks for telling me. 
He said, how is everything? I said, well, I'm fine. I said, uh, funnily enough, I got a message this morning and we won programme of the year again. Uh, I've won programme of the year. And he said, have you told the chairman? I said, no. He said, don't tell him. He said, I'll announce it in my programme notes next week. He can find out <laughs> too, which is exactly what happened. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> It was um, it, it was a very difficult time for everybody. I did go out on the pitch, and the following Monday, uh, Chelsea reserves were playing at Kingstonian, uh, and I got there about five to seven, kick off seven o'clock. I used to watch the games. I often sat with Ron Hawkins, our old stat man, and I got there, and Ron was just arriving at the same time. And I looked up, and Ken was in the uh, was in the director's box where I sat behind Glenn Hall, uh, and Glenn always used to tell me how to sit with the chairman when he was there so that he didn't have to sit with him. So I thought, oh, God. And I went up and I sat down next to him and I said, well, have you found out who leaked it? And he told me to F off again and we were fine after that. Which was Ken, by the way. If you treated him properly, those wars, it was fine. And maybe Matthew and Ken didn't treat each other properly and that's why it was like that. Interesting. Very, very interesting. We'll leave sort of Matthew Harden and Ken Bates there for now. But I just want to sort of talk about your particular preferences in regards to Chelsea moments. And what one moment stood out for you as the turning point for the club, both from a positive point and a negative? Uh, In 1995... We signed Rune Hullet. And the press conferences used to be held in the upstairs room above the train above the changing rooms at Harlington. For the first press conference, there weren't there wasn't enough space to have all the journalists in there. And it was a sunny day. So it was held outside. And there was just these massive journalists there. Rude Hullet. The the people in my lifetime who have changed our club, changed it. Not the best people, but mm. the people who have changed it. Tommy Doherty, who dragged us into the 1960s, and the man who gave us blue shorts, white socks <laughs> to go with the blue shirt, uh, who dragged, uh, dragged us into the 1960s. Um, Ken Bates, who saved us from bankruptcy. Um, John Neal, who took a team that was uh, only good enough to avoid relegation to the third tier on the penultimate weekend of the season and turned it into a top six side. Um, Glenn Hoddle, Rude Hullet, uh, and then Roman and Jose Mourinho. They're the people who have changed the club. I don't think anyone else has really changed it. Interesting. Yeah, we will talk about Roman sort of later on if we can, but I just want to talk about a particular thing that Chelsea launched back in 2001, which was Chelsea TV. Now, I remember sort of growing up, Chelsea TV was quite a new thing. It was quite a sort of a, a new thing for English clubs to have their own TV station. Obviously, Manchester United had it, Liverpool had one, and then Chelsea followed Sue. But you were part of that setup. How excited was you that this channel was there for Chelsea supporters and for yourself to to you know create content for Chelsea supporters? And what fun stories can you share that you know occurred on Chelsea TV? 
Um, it, it was brilliant. It, it was, um, I, I had done some television back in the 1980s and uh, hadn't actually enjoyed it. Uh, uh, it was you know, one of those things where you have an idea and it comes to fruition and you film it a year later and then another year later it comes out. Um, I remember on one occasion uh, doing a documentary, uh, uh, a two-part documentary on Channel 4 about unemployment. Uh, and when it finally came out, I had to go on some BBC Two show with, was it Gus McDonald or somebody, you know, where they reviewed the show the, the, the week after it came out. Right. Mm. And uh, the following night, I was talking to my mum and I said, did you see the thing I did last night? And she said, yes, I didn't think it was very good. And I said, why not? She said, well, you didn't look good. You looked very bald. I said, well, I am very bald. And she said, we well, weren't that bold last week when you were on. I said, that was last year. I filmed that over a year ago. <laughs> and that's how television was and still is to a great extent. And, and it just didn't have the immediacy. Chelsea TV offered you utter immediacy. And, and it was all kind of unscripted and, and, and um, uh, you were living off your, you're living off your knowledge and your, and, and your ideas. And uh, yeah, I loved it uh, from that point of view. Um, early on, some of the coverage they wanted was very standard. And, and I was, you know, I'd had a history in community politics as well, and I was totally against it uh, and fought against it. And I remember early on driving in uh, to the training ground and uh, being told um, I had to interview Mario Stanich. And Mario Stanich had been out for a year, but he'd started training again. And I said, why are we doing him now? Because all we can talk about is that he's been a waste of money because he signed and, and he, he hasn't played. And, and let's just let him have a game under his belt and we'll do him then. No, 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 you've got to do him now. So it got really stroppy and I got there. And, and for people working for Chelsea TV, and again, I was on a freelance basis, so I, I wasn't an employee said, no, you have to do it or we're all going to get into trouble. I said, like, hell, I'm doing it. If we do this, the player will turn against us and then we'll never get him again. And uh, so I went to Gwyn Williams, who was the assistant manager and, I, uh, uh, and who wasn't involved in the coaching. I said, look, just to let you know, I've been told I have to do this. I've refused to do it. I need your support if, uh, if, if anything goes off. And he said, well, I'm telling you now, if you do do it, you won't get another interview because I won't let you have one. So I said, thank you very much. So I phoned Ken Bates uh, and I told him that I wasn't doing it. Uh, the following week or the following board meeting, and I think there were three people from Input Television, uh, TV, and two from Chelsea, or maybe it was the other way around, on the board. They brought up the fact that I'd refused to do this. And the input people tried to fire me. This was three months into Chelsea TV. And they said, we can't work with it. And Ken Bates, I'm reliably informed. Uh, this would have been 2001, so I'd have been working there since 1986. I'd have been working there 15 years. And uh, replied, none of us can bloody work with him either. We can't stand him. But he's been here 15 years and we just get on with it. And you'll do the same. And that's what happened. <laughs> brilliant um, and Mario Stanich was a great interviewer and was a great bloke 
with the job that you had with Chelsea TV, whereby you was covering you know interviews and you was doing like previews to matches, especially in Europe, you must have obviously been to a lot of great places that Chelsea have been to in Europe, like Portugal, for example. What was your favourite? And in regards to the game itself, what would you say was the most intimidating atmosphere that you've experienced away at Stamford Bridge? Uh, most intimidating atmosphere by a mile, and everyone who was there says it, and all the Liverpool players say it was the best atmosphere ever, was Anfield 2005 in the semi-final in the Champions League uh, second leg. Uh, I've never known anything like it. It was brilliant. The second most intimidating, which isn't talked about enough, uh, was at Gelsenkirchen in 2003, last group stage game, uh, Ranieri season in the Champions League when we played Besiktas the game wasn't in Istanbul I remember that game someone very had been well, killed yeah. in, the, uh, in, in the British Embassy uh, uh, um, not in the building but in, in, in the grounds uh, in a terrorist attack and, and uh, the game was moved from Istanbul to, to Gelsenkirchen and of course I wasn't aware then of just how many Turkish workers there were uh, um, uh, migrants in Germany and they were all there and that was just fabulous it was absolutely brilliant and uh, um, this we lost at Liverpool but what an atmosphere it was absolutely brilliant uh, uh, and uh, they they were easily the two most uh, uh, intimidating um, the best game or the best event was Munich I, I mean that's just it it was Munich uh, because but I want to say this about two other games. 97 away to Tromso was the most bizarre game ever in the snow. I mean, that was just unbelievable. Uh, especially when Ed Dehoy mucked up on the second goal and let it slip under him. Right, Kicked yeah. the post in absolute fury and all the snow fell off the crossbar onto his balding head. I love that <laughs> moment. Uh, sorry, Ed. Uh, but... but um, uh, but the, oh, there were just so many. I mean, Champions League... Um, UEFA is so stupid and maybe corrupt, um, but so stupid that it wants to constantly tinker with this utterly fantastic competition and these these making it groups of three and more games. Just leave it as it is. It is the most sensational competition. And there have just been so many brilliant nights in, in, in the Champions League, whether it's Michael Essien's last-minute winner in Valencia in the knockout stage and That's right, uh, yeah. in 2007-08, uh, I think it was. Might have been 2006-07, actually. It was 06-07. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and um, you know, just, just, oh, just so many. But I, I want to say this. I've never, like anybody else who's a Chelsea fan, I'm sure, watched the 2008 Champions League final against Manchester United back. Um, I haven't my, watched it back. My recollection of the game itself is that it's one of the best games of high-quality football that I've ever seen. Um, it's now remembered for the John Terry slip. John Terry was the best player in the world that night. He was unbelievable. He made a clearance off the line that I've never seen the likes of in that game, and it's just forgotten about. Didier Drogba got himself sent off, but he was an absolute tower of monstrosity that night. He was wonderful. 
and and there were so many great performances that night and and um but we lost and that's how it is but but what a game that was and of course didier hit the woodwork frank hit the woodwork uh, and I think United hit the Woodward at once. So, so we had the better of the game, no doubt about it. And uh, but hey, I, it, it didn't work out. But didn't matter in the end. To put a bow on Chelsea TV at the moment, was you disappointed or surprised that it was cancelled by Chelsea a few years ago, and whereby they said, right, all our content's now got to be online. You've you know, you've got to sign in and. You can watch as much stuff as you want. Was you disappointed that the actual TV station was cancelled? Because I remember you know, a few people mentioned on social media that they were gutted because they don't want to watch Chelsea on a laptop. They want to watch Chelsea highlights or whatever on a TV. And well, they policy had changed. Change. Policy had changed a lot. Um, and uh, I was kind of being eased out from uh, 2007 on. So, so it didn't affect me because I've been eased out altogether by then. Um, uh, uh, sat my a thousand cuts. Um, but but uh, my feeling very strongly was that they had looked, they, they had two issues which, um, which were critical in the decision. One was that it was losing money. And the other one was that uh, they had a new social media uh, hierarchy uh, who really wanted nothing more than 30-second sound bonus uh, because that's how you get your clicks, that's how you get your, uh, that's how you get your uh, so-called new fans, uh, and that's much more important than actual quality content. I was only ever interested in quality content and uh, um, so uh, I was really upset yeah that, that it stopped uh, because um, because because it's still really the case that it's only those 30 second sound bites that are valued by it and I, it's a shame it's mm. a shame um, I still watch games back on the laptop but I can't get on TV uh, afterwards um, I still love a lot of what it does um, but it is a different product to what was born in 2001 hmm. I mean I, I know it's been a while but I still miss it you know I, I still enjoyed sort of seeing just like player interviews and even interviews yeah, I that mean, were done by you know great legends like you know when you've interviewed like Ron Harris and as you say you know, interviewed Rude Hullet, Peter Benetti and it was great because it was you know, for say, for example, six o'clock at night, you can watch the headlines, and then half six, there'd be something on Hernan Crespo, his best goals, and then quarter to seven, it'll be talking about the eighties. It was, it was varied. It had something for every sort of Chelsea fan that yeah, loved it. it, it and... Yeah, it's a shame. It is a shame. Hmm. Uh, um, but uh, when I was when I was editor of Onside, uh, I was fulfilling Colin Hutchinson's demands that you will walk the line uh, and get fan engagement. And we had a very, very uh, free and liberal letters page uh, in, in which um, I would, I would uh, publish letters that were quite, quite 
uh, critical. Uh, I would always take the side of the club because that's the only way I could get away with doing it. Uh, uh, but I, I would, uh, in my answers, but I would publish the critical letters. And you know what? I never had a problem with the club from that. Never. Uh, and when, when we started TV, a year after we started TV, we started the phoning. Uh, and I started doing three phone-ins a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, live phone-ins. Uh, and on site, uh, finished in 2004, and very much those phone-ins really took over the opportunity for people to be questioning of club policies, and, mm. and I would deal with it. I remember early on in, in the, in the phone-ins, in the first year, uh, we went out... Uh, in the um, in the U- UEFA Cup to Stavanger, Viking Stavanger in in Sweden. Right. Uh, yes, I remember. Yeah. And uh, it was a Thursday night, uh, and I was told by the communications department that we had to cancel the live show on Chelsea TV the following night because uh, uh, because of the pressure that it would bring which I thought was uh, absolutely summed up why you don't have a communications department anywhere near a football club. Um, and uh, I said it would be absolutely no problem at all. And there was some building work going on at the stadium. At the time. I convinced them to let me do it. And there was some building work going on at the stadium at the time. And I went and borrowed a hard hat. Uh, and I took it into the studio and I sat there and I said, right, you can ask me what, you can bring up whatever you like. I've got my hard hat. So any time that you ask me anything that's fierce, I'm going to put it on in order to stave you off. But I'm warning you all now, whatever you say, I'm going to finish up by asking you a reason for optimism so that we can get on the right note by the end of the show. Now, the following weekend, the Sunday, we were playing at Anfield and one person stupidly said we're going to win at Liverpool. And then everybody said it after that. And the whole thing kind of fell into actually uh, quite second-rate television because everyone knew we weren't going to win at Liverpool. We just lost at Viking Stavanger, you idiot. But um, uh, but uh, it worked. It worked. And we were able to do it. And you are able to do it. And you can have that kind of critical comment. Uh, it doesn't have to all go on social media and be separate from the club. It can be a part of the club, uh, and it can be it can be controlled. But what can't be controlled is the kind of uh, enforced silence that you have, enforced by communications departments and what have you, when things aren't going well. That is what creates unrest. And that's how you get super leagues. But anyway. We won't talk about Super League today, I promise you, Neil. Um, what I do want to you talk can. about... <laughs> I, was, I was there, I was at the protest. Yes, we, I, did, I did notice you on social media. You was there front and centre with the uh, Chelsea supporters and that, that, that was just a, a crazy night, you know, considering the fact that Chelsea were playing that night as well. It was just... That must have been one of the craziest nights, surely, that, for the I club. Was it Brighton? Wasn't it Brighton? Yes, yes, because we we yeah. drew the game. Yes, we drew the game, but won the fight. Yes. Get in there. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Social Podcast Network.